Well, good morning to everybody. I'm uh, resting well at David and Teresa's house. I feel pretty good. I hope you do. And today's a longer day. We, we're two days with only one left for the meeting, but we're, we've still got more than half of the meeting left. So we still got three good lessons today. By good, I mean serious and, and uh, important. So we uh, let's gather today and, and see if we can grow in our marriages and in our planning to marry in, in the, our view of the family as we look at God's word. I've enjoyed being here so far so very much. Thank you. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus tells the story of a wise man who built his house on a rock. And uh, when the storms came, that, that house stood. And contrast that with the foolish man who built his house on the sand. And as the storm and the, the water and the waves and the wind uh, unsettled that house, it collapsed. And uh, Jesus makes the application when he says... Uh, he that hears my word and does them is like the wise man. And that, that story is not specifically talking about marriage. It's just talking about life. As we build our life, as we live our life, we want to build on solid foundation of the word of God and, and understand and keep the commandments of God and of Christ. But where better to apply the principle than in the study of the home and the family? That is the heart of our entire lives. That's who we are. It's what we are. It's what we do. It's the people that we depend on and that need us in this mutual relationship of giving and taking and receiving and blessing. And uh, we need to build our, our homes and our marriage on the word of God. And that's been the emphasis through the lesson so far. The first lesson was really uh, <clears throat> suggesting so that we take seriously the matter of permanence of marriage, you know, counseling couples for, uh, for permanent relationship, a permanent marriage. And so what, what do you say? Well, you say things that uh, suggest if you don't work at it, it won't last. If you don't uh, commit to what's right, it won't last. If you don't trust each other, it won't last. And seven points of counsel that we want to give people who, who are contemplating marriage or those who are maybe early in their, or late in their marriage that are beginning to question this or that. Um, Think about this. This is serious. We don't have options here. We need to do, what, do what's right. And doing what's right will always take us in the right direction. The second lesson uh, is to, to suggest that our marriage needs to be true to the intent of God from creation. And that is in what we were created to be as human beings in the image of God, like God, and uh, what we were created and who we were created to be as individuals, male and female, and the relationship that God intended to grow out of that aspect. And uh, what we said was that in all this, it, it mirrors the image of God. We are created in the image and the likeness of God. And so we need to behave like and look like and talk like God does. And so godliness and faithfulness to the Lord is so significant to a good marriage. If there's problems in my marriage, there's sin somewhere. It may be in myself, it may be in my spouse, uh, but somewhere we're not, we're not living right. If we live right, our marriage is going to be good. We need to grow spiritually, and that was the emphasis uh, uh, in that, that lesson. There, as we talk about um, 
making our marriages good and permanent, and I believe those things go together, uh, because um, the permanence of, rela- of the relationship requires some things of us. But the permanence of the relationship gives us things as well. If it's permanent, I've got to be faithful. I have to stick with this. I have to work it out and make it right and then also make it good. But how can I invest the effort and the energy and the time in that? Because I know what I get out of it. So the permanence is a blessing, much more than a curse. It's a responsibility to hold to that permanence, but it is a blessing. We need to think about the, 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 uh, the finality of our marriage and our promise that we make there and realize that this is for our good. And so we're going to do that. We're building on that a little bit more, not just the idea of growing spiritually, uh, but follow up with that from last night's lesson. I want to talk about, uh, let's see here, maybe it's black. Here we go. Okay. The powerful plan for permanence, building our lives on the Lord. You want to click for me one more time? All right, there's four spirit. I don't, I don't think this is working. At least I'm not working. It looks right. Thank you very much. <laughs> savvy. I'm savvy. All right, four spiritual ideals that we need to understand. And again, the point is these are not things that are peculiarly attached to the marriage relationship. They're part of life in Christ. And, and that's what we're working on for the most part here is being what God wants us to be in every aspect of our life. And if we are what God wants us to be, our marriage will be good. And so these four principles really help us in every part of our life. But certainly they have an impact in a good way on our marriage. Not going to talk too much about this one because this builds off of what we looked at last night in the creation. In Matthew chapter 7... Excuse me, Matthew chapter 19, verses 4 through 6, uh, the permanence of marriage is, is uh, discussed. And uh, when Jesus answers, he said, what God has joined together, let not man put asunder. It is to be a permanent relationship. And we need to understand that that permanence comes from God. We, can't, we, we do not do well alone. Genesis chapter 2. It's not good for man to be alone, and uh, we need a helper, us gentlemen, we need a helper, and that helper needs to be someone comparable, and that is the woman who is compatible, comparable, and uh, fulfills what lacks in the male part of the species. And uh, uh, God made man a helper from from his side, complementing and completing him, we read last night. And so the husband will leave father and mother, cleave to his wife, and the two become one flesh. And Jesus suggested that that statement is where God establishes the permanence of marriage. And that is the answer to those who ask Jesus, is it right for a man to divorce for any cause? He said, haven't you read what was God said from the beginning? The two become one, and let not man put asunder is what Jesus said. So we leave father and mother. The people to whom we are more closely related than anyone else, we leave our parents and we are joined to our spouse. And that we think about our relationship with our parents can never be broken. I mean, parents are your parents. You hold on to your parents. To a greater degree, in a more significant way, 
You never turn loose of that wife or husband that you have, have been joined to. And so they were joined, and they were not one flesh until they were married, until they were joined and they became one flesh. And that was an act of will. The becoming one flesh legally is established in the command. But practically, it's, it's the work we have to do. To become one is something that we do, something that we must accomplish. So to become one, we're closer to our spouse than we are even to our parents. And in this oneness, we need each other. And so we act like we need each other. We show one another that we, I need you and, and I am depending on you to help me. And so then that calls for the, uh, the counterpart to step up and satisfy and, and fulfill and in every way, physically, emotionally, in every part of our lives, socially and spiritually, we are working together to satisfy and help and lift each other up. And so we're always there for each other. This is the nature of the relationship as the two become one. We are complementing and completing one another as human beings. So... There's no gimmick in, in what we're talking about. There's no uh, a list of every morning do this and every night do that. It's just a call to character in, as we approach this. And there's a place for those little rules that we make and habits that we establish and things that we put into our vocabulary as, as an act of trying to do better and to be better. But that will not sustain the marriage. It can help it. But what sustains it is going to be the spiritual commitment that we have made. Uh, Are you and your spouse one? That is the nature of the relationship. So the second ideal that we want to move forward to is the idea of the power of the word. Uh, In uh, Malachi chapter uh, 2, God said, I hate putting away. Uh, He anticipated that we would be faithful to each other and in all things. First, turn first for, to Romans chapter 7. In Romans chapter 7, we're going to read verses 1 through 3. Do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives? For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So who made that rule? Oh, God made that rule. Who said this? Who had made the statement that a woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives? Who said that? God said that. And we understand that the power of God's word first illustrated in the creation where God spoke the entire universe into existence. He said, let there be. And his will and his intent was accomplished with that word. And the world is sustained by his word. The sun continues to do exactly what God designed it to do. There is no alteration. There's no variation. Whether we're talking about the sun or the trees or the animals. The only exception is humanity. Where God was seeking one with whom he could have fellowship in a personal way. And so man is created. Humanity is created in the image of God. And with that, as we talked about it last night, the power of choice and the will of choice. But the word of God controls us. If we're going to have a relationship with God, it does. And so the power of the word of God. And so there's power in the commandment that uh, you should not divorce. You should stay with. You should love your spouse and, and, uh, and submit to your husband. And that is the word of God. But when we got married, our word came into play. We had a will. We had an intention. 
And that intent was to be joined together in marriage. And we promised. We said, I do take you to be my lawfully wedded wife. I do take you to be my lawfully wedded husband. And it's kind of nice to hear the bride and the groom say the whole sentence, not just answer the question with I do, which is enough. That is a promise and a statement of intent and purpose that must be fulfilled. But it's nice to know exactly what is it you're going to do. I'm going to take this woman. I'm going to take this man. And I will be everything that God wants me to be. And that is the word that was spoken in promise with prayer and with the recognition of God. And that it is before him who created us and made us to be the way we are, enabled us to be joined together as one. And so in his name, we make a claim to be faithful to our spouse. We gave our word. And we tear up that word sometimes. We break our promise sometimes. And we are less of a person, not just in marriage, but in every way. There's not all that many sins named in the book of Revelation that says, and those who practice such things will end up in the lake of fire. But lying is one of the top on the list. All liars. And that's named twice in the book of Revelation, suggesting that the punishment for the sin of lying is eternal fire. So why is lying so serious? And and we talk about white lies and talk about, well, it wasn't actually a lie. And what's the big deal about lying? Because it is at the heart of our character. Are we people of integrity? Can we be trusted? Do we mean what we say? Do we think before we speak? See, our words are powerful. We accomplish more and we destroy more by our words than, than any, any action that we take. I guess unless you're a demolitions expert. But otherwise, the rest of us, what we say accomplishes great good and great things. And what we say causes great harm as well. And so what we say before God as we make a promise, the power of our word is significant. Uh, look, look at Malachi. We go back. There's, we're using the same scriptures over and again. But in Malachi chapter 2, verse 13, you'll remember this passage from last night. But look for the lying part, the word part, the promise part. In verse 13, the second thing you do, you cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying. So he does not regard the offering anymore, nor receive it with goodwill from your hand. Yet you say, for what reason? And here's the reason that God has rejected them. Because the Lord has been witness. What has he witnessed? He has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, with whom you have dealt treacherously. What did he witness? He witnessed the promise. I heard you say it. You said you would do this. And this is God reacting to our word and what we've said. Yet you have done, dealt treacherous, treacherously with her. Yet she is, your, she is your companion and your wife by covenant. What covenant? The covenant you made with your wife. The agreement, the, testi- the testament, the will, the intention, the contract. She is your wife by con- covenant. You signed on the line. You made the promise. Did he not make them one? When does God make them one? After they make the promise. After they make the promise. And why one? God seeks godly offspring. Therefore, take heed to your spirit. Take heed to your spirit 
and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. Take heed to your spirit is calling for us to understand spiritual matters and spiritual promises and spiritual responsibilities. It's not just about eating another meal. It's not about going to bed because you're tired. It's about the purpose and the intent and the marriage relationship and the promise that was made. What does the word treacherously mean? You may have a different translation there, but I'm going to leave it at treacherously and, and bring some synonyms to the table. Treacherously means uh, faithlessly, acting as though you did not believe and that you are not trustworthy. Betrayal is a synonym for treacherously. You have betrayed one another. Uh, traitoriously, a traitor. His actions are traitorous. His behavior is traitoriously. Don't deal with your wife, your husband, by being a traitor. And deceptive, finally, a simple one that we can all handle. You're treating your wives treacherously, committing the sin of violence and putting blood on the altar of God that separates you from him. And so the power of our word is significant. We need to be honest with our spouse. We need to be serious when we promise. We need to take the responsibility of being a person of integrity in all things and absolutely in our family. The consequences of breaking our word are significant. The pain when the lie is discovered, when the dishonesty has been revealed, the walking away and what is left behind. Uh, we, need, we need to be people who speak the truth always, absolutely with regard to our family responsibilities. And uh, this, is where, uh, this is where the apostles were a little bit nervous about even getting married. If that's the way it is with your, a man and his wife, then maybe it's better not to marry. If you're not going to keep your word and stay with your husband and with your, your wife, don't get married. This is a promise to which God holds us accountable. So how sure am I? How committed am I? How loyal am I? Until death is what the word said. And that's the promise I made. It's the promise I made. And probably for most all of us, that was a part of the wording of our promise. Until death separates us. How sure are we? It's an act of will. As sure as I intend to be, I guess is the answer. How sure am I that I'm really going to keep this promise? Well, how do you feel about your word? You keep your word. You just do. And so this is the idea of a spiritual uh, concept that is so important in our marriage. Let's not be liars. Let's speak the truth with our neighbor, especially the one that lives in the same house. All right, another ideal, and that is the beauty of faithfulness. Very much positive idea in this one. What does it mean to be faithful? Well, when we're talking about husbands and wives, we primarily mean that we don't have a relationship with anybody else other than our spouse. That's being faithful. That's being faithful in, in, the, in the least, in, 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 uh, in one very limited area. We need to be faithful people. Again, faithful to our promises and faithful to our word, but faithful to the people that we give ourselves to, to the promises that we make, to the life that we have chosen, to the God who created us. We need to be people who are faithful. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 
And I think here we find a picture of faithfulness in this chapter 7, all about marriage, really, starting with the question, if you remember probably, uh, the question that was sent to Paul, is it right for a man not to touch a woman? And he goes from there and spends a whole chapter on the marriage relationship. But in chapter 7, verses 2 through 5, nevertheless, let's start with one. Now, concerning the things of which you wrote... Is it good for a man not to touch a woman? Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife. Let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband render to his wife the affection. Do her. You owe her this. And likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except with consent. And I'm assuming that's mutual consent as they speak together. For a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. This text, when you look closely, it acknowledges our, our weaknesses. Don't be separated very long. God knows about that. He knows what long separation might mean for a couple. God knows what we're up against. He knows what he's asking of us. He expects us to step up and be what we ought to be. But let's just think about it from the other side, the positive side, the faithful side. And that is that I belong to somebody else when I marry. I still do what I want to do. And in God's plan, the other partner is not supposed to compel or force uh, and, and by the power, physical power and brute force, uh, control and have power over the, the wife or the wife over the husband. But we belong to the other. And so when the, the wife does not have power over her own body, it does not mean that I have rights of force that belong to me. She belongs to me. But she needs to give herself to me. And that's what this text is saying. Do not deprive. That's the command of God. And the wife can uh, deprive. Couldn't she? Just say no and no and no. And for how long? Until the husband does something sinful and forceful. That's not the will of God. The giving of ourselves to the one we have given ourselves to is that love and the care of faithfulness. We yield ourselves to each other in many ways well beyond the sexual uh, relations. We give ourselves when we give our time. We give ourselves when we give our hearts. We give our sorrow when we give our emotions. And so we need to be faithful to each other and knowing that we belong to somebody else. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 through, six, 10 through 16. Uh, now, now, not, is that right? Yes, 10 through 16. Uh, that the, the wife is not to depart from her husband. That's because she belongs to him. If she does depart, she better not marry. That's not permission to depart. Don't let that second part suggest that, well, okay, God's okay with your departure as long as you don't marry somebody else. If Mark writes that if a man puts away his wife for any other cause, uh, he's, he's guilty of her adultery. Divorce is a sin even if we never remarry. Because we're obligated. We have, we have taken from our spouse what we owe our spouse. 10, uh, 
in chapter 7, verse 10. Verses 32 through 35, but I want you to be without care. He who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But he who is married cares about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. And God understands that that is our responsibility. I wanted to be a preacher before I was married. As a, as a young person, I was studying and planning. That was my decision. I wanted to be a preacher. But I also wanted to be a husband. And those, those can work together. But we need to understand that that changes the way I function as an evangelist when I marry. God realizes that because I've got an obligation to my spouse. And that care, that faith, that kind of faithfulness is significant. And so we need to see to the care of each other. Please the wife, please the husband. Uh, Worry over them, help and support them. We see also that um, he or she, excuse me, I covered that one. Uh, we need to be able to look each other in the eye and say, I will never leave you. We will always be together. That promise uttered over and again in a serious way is significant. It reminds each other that we made a promise. And this faithfulness is a part now. Faithfulness not just in in, uh, sexual things, but faithfulness in everything. Not only... Not only faithfulness in the permanence of marriage, but also faithful in our care, in our devotion, in our commitment to each other, to becoming one, faithful in the per- to the person and that he or she married. And, you know, when we find somebody, and I'm taking this from my father-in-law's wedding sermon that I heard for the first time standing in front of the congregation as we got married. And dad said, when you find somebody that will give themselves to you fully and completely with a promise of a lifetime, says, you have found a great treasure. You want to take care of that. And then he said it again. He talked to Cammy. <laughs> he says, if you found, when you have found someone, and I'm telling you that when you find someone that will promise themselves to you, You need to promise to care for them. There's love and care. Uh, There is no desire or no interest for any other person. Exodus chapter 20 is uh, you you shall not commit adultery. So you're not going to be with anybody else ever, ever in your life. Not again. You've got one wife, one husband. That's the one. But not only there, you cannot even have a desire, a looking toward We have to control our heart. We have to control our body. We have to control our eyes. And faithfulness is a beautiful thing because a woman should be able to say, my husband doesn't even look at other women. And we cringe a little bit on this one because that's likely a sin that, that we have suffered through. I hope we come out on the other side of it righteous and we repent and, and hold ourselves to this. Uh, Jesus is the one that said, if, you, if a man looks upon another woman, he's guilty of adultery in his heart already. And so we need to be loyal and faithful in every respect. We need to understand another, another principle, the fourth one, and the last one for this, letter, the, for this lesson, is we need to understand the wonder of reconciliation. 
Now, the wonder of reconciliation is seen primarily in scriptures as a reconciliation between humanity and God. And who is, who's the offender in that relationship? Well, that's us. And who is the one who was capable of making reconciliation? Well, that was God. We, we understand that spiritual principle in, in, from Scripture. But the truth is, we need to bring that into our marriages in a very strong way. Look at Hosea chapter 1. There we go. In Hosea chapter 1, let's read verses 1 through 3. The word of the Lord came to Hosea, the son of Barry, in the days of Uzziah. I'll drop down to verse 2. When the Lord began to speak by Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take yourself a wife of harlotry and children of harlotry. For the land has committed great harlotry by departing from the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Deblime, and she conceived and bore him a son. Then the Lord said to call his name Jezreel, for in a little while I will avenge the bloodshed of Jezreel on the house of Judah. Verse 6 says, and she conceived again and bore a daughter. And then God said to him, call her Lo-Ruhamah, for I will no longer have mercy on the house of Israel. God's people have been unfaithful to him, and he's going to put them away. No longer have mercy on them. And he calls Hosea, who evidently was a single prophet, and says, I want you to marry. I want you to marry someone of harlotry. So this is not a person that you expect to be faithful. And she was not. Marry her. And I want you to be a picture of what I'm going through, is what God is doing here. You are a picture of what I'm going through. You're married to a harlot that you cannot trust. And that's been Israel to me, God says. Go over now to chapter 3. Let's read verses 1 through 3. The Lord said to me, now this is after, after his wife of harlotry they left him, gave herself excessively to anybody and anything, and was lost to him, even to sexual slavery, evidently, if you read the book closely. And so in chapter 3, the Lord said to me, go again, Love a woman who is loved by a lover and is committing adultery just like the love of the Lord for the children of Israel who took to other gods and loved the raisin cakes of the pagans. And so now, Hosea, what you need to do is you need to go find her and you need to marry her. And so he paid the money for her freedom and married her again. Wow. That's a, pic, a picture of reconciliation that we can hardly comprehend or accept. It's an extreme. And that is because the unfaithfulness of the people of God was extreme. But God is a God of reconciliation. And he created us in his image. We need to be people of reconciliation. And this is not an instruction that those who have... Who have uh, uh, suffered adultery in their family and their spouse has not been faithful. The Lord tells us that we don't have to stay married. We don't have to remarry them. Though they can be put away. 
So we're not really talking about that. But in our marriages, well, let's maybe say it this way. You're not perfect. <laughs> and I'm not perfect. And he's not perfect. And she's not perfect. So what's going to have to happen over time as the infractions and the failures and the disappointments increase and grow and pile up? What are we going to have to do? Not let them pile up. There needs to be reconciliation. There needs to be forgiveness. There needs to be mercy and patience. It can come to a point where we must separate according to Scripture because of fornication. But for the most part and for most all of us, there is so much room for forgiveness. We need to build grace into our relationship, mercy into our relationship, and we need to be able to forgive each other. We're not perfect people, so how can we stay together? The only hope we have for a permanent relationship with God is a willingness to bear the debt of our transgression and reconcile. God invites us to repent and return to him. And if we want a relationship with God, we've got to depend on his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness. But we've got to step up and be willing to go back and to commit to faithfulness once again. Reconciliation is the most wonderful thing about God in our relationship with him. He has forgiven us. That's, that, that's illustrated by the, the death of Christ. It is manifest in the centuries of planning in, in, in putting the gospel plan together so that he could be sanctified and the sanctifier, so that he could be holy while he associated himself with unholy people. And that took a pretty tricky plan for a holy God to receive us into his presence. And so our only hope for a continued relationship with God is reconciliation. It'll be a wonderful thing when it's truly found in our marriage relationship as well. There needs to be mercy and grace and patience and help and forgiveness because of the care, because of the promise, because of the nature of the relationship. We, it's worth it. And so we reconcile. It's not easy, but it's necessary. And so these are principles that we need to bring to our marriage relationship. We need to understand that we are in the image of God and our marriage reflects the uh, sharing and the fellowship in that relationship that we have with God. Our relationship with God needs to be mirrored and that image needs to be in our relationship with one another as husbands and wife. In these studies, there's not really specific chores and, and plans and, and in, uh, advice about how to get along and how to solve problems and how can you keep the romance alive and, and all of those things. There's a place for, for that. There's a place for those classes and those books and, and, and those reading. But those are not the things that establish the relationship the way God's word does. Begin with the word of God and let us see the power of his word, the power of obligation in our own word, the beauty of being a faithful man, a faithful woman. We admire people who are faithful and the wonder of reconciliation. I hope that the study has encouraged us and helped us. And uh, I'm giving you five extra minutes with your children on the floor before we enter the period of worship.